I'd like to just lift out 2 Corinthians 5.21 just to reiterate it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is one of the most important, one of the most wondrous verses in the entire Bible. C.H. Spurgeon called it the heart of the gospel. It is the gospel in one verse. Everything you need to know about how to go to heaven can be found in this particular passage, in these 23 words. It could hardly be simpler than Paul has stated it here, and yet whole books could be written about the meaning of each phrase that we're going to be looking at today. The truth found in this verse is so important. You see, if you miss this, you've missed the truth of God. If you get this right, you can get a lot of other things wrong and still go to heaven. But you have to get this right. In these days of tremendous and crazy theological confusion, it is virtually uh, well, it's vitally important that the church of Jesus Christ be firmly settled on the gospel message and what it is. And we went through it briefly with the kids just a moment ago. Our only message is contained in these 23 words. God has not commissioned us with a message about political power or military might. We are not called to right all the wrongs in the world, and we're not called to pass judgment on every passing trend. We're not given the task of transforming the world. The church has been given one major task, and that is to share the gospel with every person that we possibly can. That is our task. If that is our God-given task, we need to make sure that we know what the gospel is. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. It's going to be a little redundant. We're going to be going back over what we went over with the kids. But uh, it's important. Each phrase of this verse reveals a miracle. And a miracle is something that you can't really explain it. You can't uh, prove it and you can't disprove it. It has to be taken on faith. It can't be fully explained, but it must be accepted by faith. And the first miracle that we see in the first words in this verse reveal something about Jesus' character. It says, God made him who had no sin. Jesus was sinless. That's miraculous. He's the only person who has ever lived on the face of this earth who has been sinless. Paul begins with this fact. Christ had no sin. Some versions say that he knew no sin. 
stressing the sinlessness of uh, his nature and his inner being. There was no sin outwardly because there was no sin inwardly. When Jesus Christ walked on the face of this earth, he was perfectly righteous in a right relationship with his heavenly father. Stated negatively, he was without fault, without sin, and without evil. He never did anything wrong, never broke any of the laws of God, and never deviated in the slightest degree from the path of God's will. Now, this is crucial because if Christ had sinned, then he could not be our Savior. And that is why Satan, just as Jesus began his ministry, came at him with both barrels blazing, trying to pull Jesus into sin. Because once he did that, he would have accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. A sinner could not pay for the sins of another. The sacrifice that though the sacrifice had to be made by one who was without spot or blemish, just like the lambs uh, that were slain on the night of the final plague in Egypt. God ordained that those lambs must be one year old males in good health, free from disease or defect. The lambs that were slaughtered in Egypt pictured the coming of the Lamb of God by his bloody sacrificial death. He took away the sin of the world. Now, how do we know that Jesus had no sin? Well, we have testimony after testimony from his adversaries, from his enemies. When the Roman governor Pontius Pilate examined him, he declared, I find no fault in him. When Herod and the Jewish leaders put him in trial, they couldn't find any witnesses against him. And so they had to round up people to be false witnesses to testify against Jesus and to lie under oath. When Jesus hung on the cross, the Roman centurion cried out, truly, this was the son of God. He knew all about sin, but he never sinned. Not even once. He lived in a sinful world. But the stain of sin never tarnished his character. Of all the billions of people who have ever lived on the planet Earth, he is the only one about whom it can truly be said that he never sinned in word, in thought, or deed. There is no hint of moral contamination surrounding his name. He faced temptation head on. He faced it full strength. All that the devil could throw at him, but having felt its full weight, he never gave in. He never flinched, never even came close to sinning. To use an old term that uh, is precisely accurate, Christ was and is a moral miracle a moral miracle. And that is why the writer of Hebrews could say that he was tempted at all points, just like we are. And yet he was without sin. The second miracle 
He became sin for us. The second line says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. This is the second miracle. Jesus, the sinless son of God, became sin on our behalf. Jesus remained personally sinless even while hanging on the cross. He never committed to sin and therefore never became a sinner. However, in some sense that is totally beyond our understanding, and this is the miraculous part, he became sin for us. Historically, Christians have used two phrases to uh, describe how Jesus became sin for us. The first, he took our place. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took my place. He took your place. He took the sin of every one of us at that time. Now, this is the doctrine of substitution, that Christ died in the place of guilty sinners. Think of it this way. His nails were meant for you. His crown of thorns was meant for you. That spear that was thrust in his side should have pierced your side. And the jeers and insults were all meant for you. It should have been you hanging on a tree, but it wasn't. It was Jesus lovingly, willingly dying in your place. The night I really met Jesus, that was really driven home. He made it clear. Everything you think that I am holding against you, I paid for it. I knew you were going to do it. And in advance, I paid the price so that you could be free. And he, then he made it clear, not just for you though, Joel, but for everybody, everybody that will receive what I did, it's for them too. And that means it's for you. It's for you personally. He looked down through the years at you, knowing how you were going to mess up, knowing how you were going to flub the dub. He knew it. And he intentionally went ahead and paid the price for it. Now, some have mocked the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, saying that it's a holdover from primitive pagan religion, uh, from a religion from an ancient world. Some have derided it as slaughterhouse religion. And years ago, some Protestant denominations started removing all the hymns that mentioned the blood of Jesus from their hymn books because they were embarrassing to modern men and women. Be that as it may, true biblical religion is an offense to the natural mind. The world by wisdom can never know God and is always stumbled over the cross and always will. The death of Jesus offends the sensibilities of those who want a cultured, bloodless religion. I don't have the time to refute that notion except to say that the Bible is a book of blood 
from cover to cover, from beginning to end. Take out the blood and you have taken out God's plan of salvation. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. You cannot avoid the doctrine of substitution because this is the teaching of the New Testament. And it's foreshadowed over and over again in the Old Testament. On the cross, Jesus paid the price we owed to God, the debt we could never pay. His death satisfied God's righteous decree that sin must always be punished. There must be a price paid for sin. And this is the second doctrine. It's called the ransom doctrine. We were being held hostage by sin and a price had to be paid for our release. A life for a life. In the Old Testament, the blood of a goat was sprinkled by the high priest on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. The sprinkled blood signified the covering of the sins of the people for one more year. But did you know that there were two goats involved in the Day of Atonement? Not just one. One was killed, but the other was not. After the priest offered the blood of the first goat, he then placed his hands on the head of a second goat. Confessing the sins of the people, Leviticus 16.21 specifically says that he put them, that is the sins of the people, on the goat. And then the goat was taken into the wilderness and turned loose. And this pictured the removal of sin through the placing of those sins on an innocent victim. The goat was called the scapegoat. Does that sound familiar? Whenever you get somebody to take the blame for something and the person that you get to take the blame didn't do it, that's what we call a scapegoat. And so this goat was called the scapegoat because he symbolically took the sins of the people on himself. Now, what the goat did symbolically, Jesus literally did. He removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. It's like this. In our lives, how many sins do you think we've committed? If we put them in a book, how big would that book be? I was trying to calculate, if you just committed one sin a day, you'd almost be walking on water. And we're talking about thought, word, or deed. Just having the thought. Well, that's 365 sins a year. And uh, so 365 sins a year in 10 years, that's what, 3,650? Okay, so you can see that number gets on up there really quickly. And all it takes to separate from you from God is one. And yet, by the time we even get to where we can even think about sin, we've already done so much. We've separated ourselves from God. 
and there's nothing we can do about it. Nothing we can do to undo any sin that we've ever committed or any of the pain that we've caused by those sins. But this is what it says in Isaiah. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord laid on him. So the Lord came and he took upon himself the iniquity of us all. And so he takes our sin and then we are free to be with the Lord. I love that. This hand feels so good and this one feels so weighed down. He took the weight of our sin, the guilt of our sin, the horribleness of it, the evil of it. He took it all upon himself so that we could be washed, cleansed and free before our God. We'll never understand this. If someone says it doesn't make sense, well, I sincerely and fully agree. It doesn't make sense, but sometimes things just are what they are, aren't they? From the world's point of view, we can't fathom how one man could die in the place of another, bearing his penalty and thus providing him a right standing with God let alone doing the same thing for billions of people at one time. It's beyond our comprehension, but so is God himself. So just let it go and accept what he's revealed. We can imagine human illustrations of one man dying for another's benefit, but the benefits end with this life. We cannot conceive how a death in time could provide eternal benefits. And yet that is exactly what the Bible teaches. The issue isn't, does it make sense? That's not the issue at all. The issue is whether it is true and whether you believe it. We don't worry about what the world says or what it thinks. The world doesn't know God. And it can't know him apart from divine revelation. This is what we do know, that Christ died for the sins of the world and that in his death, God himself has suffered on our behalf. We believe that God in Christ made himself sin for man and that man in Christ is now made the righteousness of God. And this is a true miracle. Uh, and like all miracles, it cannot be explained, but it cannot be refuted either. It can only be believed or denied. The last point I want to make today, the third and final miracle in this verse, that in him we become the righteousness of God. Righteousness means in a right relationship with God, being in a place where God looks on us as sinless and pure. And this is what we all want, to be made right with God, to have our record cleared, to know that when we go to sleep at night, there is nothing between us and our heavenly Father. In this final phrase, we, we have the great exchange completed. He was condemned that we might be justified. 
He bore our sin that we might be set free. He died so that we could live. He suffered so that we could be redeemed. He was made sin so that we could be made righteous. Theologians have a term for this exchange. They call it the doctrine of imputation. And that's a, an accounting term, a banking term, if you will. It means that when we trust Christ, our sin is credited to his account and his righteousness is accredited to our account. He takes our debt and we get his credit. He paid what we owed and could never pay. And he gives us what he has and that we could never, ever earn. On earth, I cannot literally take your sin and you cannot literally take my righteousness. We just can't do that for each other. There are a lot of people that they love others and they wish they could, but we can't. Only Jesus can do that. The answer to the dilemma is profoundly simple. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. As long as you say, I cannot accept it, you're never going to be saved. There is no salvation apart from this because receiving his righteousness by faith is what salvation is all about. It's not as if God has a plan B for all those, those that get really uncomfortable with plan A. There's just plan A. That's it. You come to God by way of the cross or you do not come at all. I love the chorus to that song. It took a miracle. It took a miracle to put the stars in place. We can't explain it. It happened. It took a miracle to hang the world in space. But when he saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, it took a miracle of love and grace. Let me say this just as in closing as plainly as I can. There is nothing except your sin that stands between you and God. God's wrath was turned away in the death of his son. His justice has been satisfied. His love poured out to the world. Now, all we can do is choose. And the choice is our sins or Jesus. It comes down to that. Damnation or salvation. It's our choice. It's not something that you work at. It's not something you can work into. It's not something you can work up to. All you can do is accept what he has already done. If you come to God through Christ, you will be accepted you will not, you cannot be turned away. Sometimes we forget how powerful the gospel is and how easy it is for a sinner to be saved. I've been preaching for 46 years and I can say with conviction that I have never known a sinner who went to Christ, 
who wasn't received by him. Everyone who comes to him that I've ever known, he has received. Tragically, I will tell you this. I have known people that were so eaten up with their guilt to where they didn't feel that they were worthy enough or good enough for God. That's what the cross is all about. None of us are good enough. None of us are worthy enough. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's for those who realize they're not good enough and can never make themselves worthy enough. It's for them. That's why he came. That's what the cross is all about. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.